Welcome to the Urantia Radio Podcast. I'm so glad to have Joel Garvin back, and thank you so much for joining us on the Urantia Radio Podcast. How are you, sir? Oh, great, Jim. Thanks for having me back on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we always are covering some interesting topics here. Well, people like you, and they like our discussions about things, and uh, I know that you and I have sort of that similar scientific approach sometimes. But what do you uh, what 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 caught your eye about this whole thing with uh, the James Webb Telescope? Uh, and we can go into a little bit of of what what the new reveal is. But what what caught your eye about it in the beginning? And, and are you are you uh, are you also a, a believer that the Big Bang is nothing more than a uh, sort of an atheistic approach describing the universe? Well, for me, the Big Bang has always been very intellectually unsatisfying. Just the whole concept that, well, it all sprang out of nothing, and then the question of what came before the Big Bang explosion never gets addressed. You know, and I am a scientist, and I, I think it's important that we use the rationale of science to try to explain our universe and, and the human condition but this is something that is like the big elephant in the room, right? <laughs> it's like, what came before it? What came before it? And can't we, as human beings, which also, uh, you know, it's important to remember that scientists are human beings, aren't we allowed to ask these bigger questions? Like, could there be a mind and intelligence behind the creation of the universe? Does it have to just be about mathematics? and principles of physics, and sterile natural laws, can't there really be a God that's deeply embedded as the creator of the universe? And I think the answer is yes, but why do we constrain ourselves? I'm a scientist, but I refuse to constrain myself to just the scientific method. I think it's it's really important as thinking human beings who have a mind and a spiritual endowment that we bring and integrate spirit into the discussion because it doesn't need to be divorced from science. And I've been really, I think, fairly outspoken about that through much of my career. And I, well, I guess I'm, I'm one of quite a few who are labeled as mavericks. We, we do tend to challenge dogmas and uh, this is this is one of the dogmas, the Big Bang Theory, that I, I do love to challenge. I think it really opens people's minds to bigger pictures. Well, we both know that the reaction, the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment somehow freed the shackles of organized religion. And organized religion was was totally against the idea of a natural evolving universe. Uh, and I think that the Enlightenment took away from that, that there had to be what they call the sucker's choice. It was one or the other. It couldn't be both. And we've suffered because of it, because scientism today asserts that there is no divine mind, that there couldn't be. It couldn't be explained. And therefore, since we can't cons- comprehend it, it, it doesn't exist. The only thing that exists is what we can show that exists which is that the universe is made up of atomic particles. And, and and we're now learning, I think, that even atomic particles aren't themselves solid objects. 
So what makes them, what gives them their impetus, their energy, their coordinated uh, ability um, in their circular motion? So even in trying to attempt a materialistic explanation of the universe, scientists themselves, and we'll hear this at the end of the, the program, scientists themselves understand that something could come along and completely refute that theory or that hypothesis. And I think the James Webb Telescope is revealing that very truth, which is that the universe is a lot older, it's not just 14 billion years old, and that not everything came from a singular moment. So I I think the validation that that I can appreciate in this is that many people who would otherwise be attracted to something like the Arantia book or the idea of having a personal relationship with a deity can't because science holds them back. It holds them hostage. It says you can't be a true scientist if you believe in non-scientific ideas. Yeah, that's a great point, Jim. And that constraint, those are real shackles on us making progress, not just in the area of science, but in area, other areas as well. And it, it touches on this topic. Uh, I know I had presented to you the idea that it'd be great for us to weave in this question to our discussion. And that question is, does dogma interfere with the pursuit of truth? And I believe the short answer is it doesn't have to. We don't have to allow our deeply held beliefs to interfere with the pursuit of deeper insight, deeper truths. And I, I think maybe maybe that's kind of like a little bit of a springboard on why we might consider why the reluctance to challenge these conventional theories. You know, if we look at just a, definary, a, a dictionary definition of dogma, you know, one good definition is that a dogma is a principle or a set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertible truth. So it implies that there's an authority in there. <laughs> okay. And, and so that really comes into play because when, when we consider where the dogmas come from and why we tend to ascribe to them, a lot of it revolves around the authority. So a dogma may be propagated by an authority out of a sincere desire to share a pursue a perceived truthful insight and maybe thereby uplift a society. And I think for most of us, when we think about dogma, we think about religion. And certainly there's some very, very deeply held religious beliefs that are true or relatively true and that are helpful to society. But now, on the other hand, dogma may be propagated by an authority as an instrument of control and likely to advance hidden agendas. And I think we got a lot of those in our midst where dogma is used as a control mechanism. And I think they've been coming more clearly into focus for more and more people recently. And I'll just use a, a few quick examples you know, the government propaganda of COVID vaccines as safe and effective. We have relentlessly heard that, safe and effective. That has become a dogma, but it's clearly untrue for anyone who has, you know, eyes to see and ears to hear 
and, and has a brain. Uh, but yet that has been propagated. Well, clearly there's an agenda behind that. Uh, other would be where we see religious authorities that use dogma to literally sell salvation, right? Well, that's, that's kind of a gross distortion of what religious uh, truth should be about. And another one that I think a lot more people get clued into is, you know, the scientific uh, dogma that, you know, climate change is solely due to greenhouse gas emissions. All right. And that is ringing less and less true for those who like to investigate larger possibilities like, well, what the heck's happening on our star? Could that maybe have something to do with why the earth seems to be warming? Uh, Are people willing to look and examine that, that there's a lot of material being sprayed into our skies routinely and that actual geoengineering is happening right above us every day to influence our weather. If people want to look into that, uh, boy, they're, they're going to really uh, have a, a rude awakening because that's something that's real and that's been going on for a long time. I'll just leave that at that. So anyway, there's, you know, various dogmas, they, you know, they occur in religion, they occur in science, they occur in politics and in social culture, you know, even in social media. And, and I would maintain that, you know, each of us has dogmas. I certainly do. I ascribe to certain dogmas. Jim, I, I imagine that, that you do as well. I'll, I'll give oh, a sure. few of, of my own, and then I'll, I'll ask you to comment on maybe a few of your own, Jim. Okay. It, you know, I would say some, some examples of my own dogmatic beliefs, like in the, the arena of, of religion, definitely would be uh, God exists. Uh, Jesus is who he claimed to be. Uh, there's life after death. I mean, those are kind of some basic religious dogmas I have. And in the science arena, you know, I believe the earth is a sphere. I believe gravity is real. You know, in politics, I I think that the probability of a politician becoming corrupt increases with the number of years <laughs> in office. It's inversely proportional. Okay. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. yeah. And in the social arena, uh, something I believe is true is that work done well elevates a man's dignity. And conversely, uh, when an able man lives off the fruits of another person's work, he destroys his dignity. So men who are capable should not beg. And so those are just some of my dogmas. Uh, You probably have some of your own. There, I'm curious oh, sure. what, what would be a few of yours, Jim. Well, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head. I, my biggest dogma, if, if I subscribe to something where I have a settled belief about it, which I think for me is the definition, it's just something that would be, it would be nearly impossible to shake my belief, is in the authenticity of the Arantia book as a revelation. Sometimes it contradicts my earthly viewpoint, because what if I'm wrong, right? There's always that element of, of doubt. Uh, but I, mm-hmm. I, I've made enough of a, of not only an emotional but an intellectual commitment to it that it would be hard. You would have to disprove it at this point. 
the proof for me is already there. It, it's self-revealing. It satisfies my intellectual curiosity and doesn't compromise my intellectual integrity. So that's why I can be dogmatic about that. In fact, the dogma there is, is so profound that I wish everybody else would be dogmatic about it too because I could see how it could help other people to know, for example, that this isn't the only life we have. If you, if you were told as a young child that you were only going to go through 12 grades and then that was it, it was all over, there's nothing else, how much effort would you put into your education? Well, you wouldn't put much because you would know that it's futile. So a lot of people are walking mm -hmm. around right now as we speak, and they're, they're behaving as if everything is ultimately futile. There is no afterlife. There is nothing else to behold. People are dogmatic about that. People are dogmatic mm -hmm. about the fact that religion or specifically Christianity is bad. They're dogmatic. They're anti-religious in the same way that an atheist is dogmatic about his belief. He believes that he is right and that there is no God. And so he is offended. He's, and now when you get to the point where you're offended that other people don't subscribe to your behavior, that's sociopathic. And, uh, and mm -hmm. so, you know, having said that, I totally agree with you. There, science has, you know, you asked a very important question, or you made a very, state, a very important statement. The reason that dogma is dangerous, where you, you, you have to have that little escape hatch, right? is for this. Yes. The way the, the, the environment today in science, in medicine, in healthcare, is that people who go against the grain uh, will be unfunded. They will be uh, canceled. They will be removed uh, fr from those who are, for example, in favor of climate change. You will not get a, a paper sponsored or funded or a research project funded if you come out against questioning climate change. That's a fact. It's the same with a lot of the doctors during the pandemic. They were not allowed to prescribe uh, therapy to patients who had COVID until their oxygen level dropped by, I believe, below 70. That's, that's horrible to let somebody get that sick before you treat them. And then by then, the cytokine storm is so out of control, there's no way to save the guy except to sh shove a bunch of tubes down his, his throat and hope for the best. And we created that environment from dogma. Dr. Fauci, uh, I'm sure he's an incredible man. I'm sure he loves his dog. I, I bet you he's the nicest husband in the world, but he suffers from dogma. He was so dogmatic in his approach, he was willing to shut down the entire world to prove that he was correct. So science isn't at fault. The scientist is a human, and we're all humans, and we're all capable of, of failure. In fact, failure is our middle name. It is the, it is, it is not, it's not the exception, it's the rule. You have to work at it. You have to work at being a human being. You have to work at being loyal. All these things you have to work at because they're not inherently in us. They're, they're achieved by the decisions we make based on the principles that we hold to be true. And in my example, I think I'm going to be held accountable for what I do here, so I better not screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's all I've got yep, to say. Yeah. Other than that, I have no opinion on the matter. <laughs> that that was that was really well spoken, and you were really ringing my bell, and I'm sure uh, for many other people too. Uh, and you brought up several several key points here, and one of those is really, you know, so why 
why do people abandon the free-thinking pursuit of truth and refuse to challenge dogma? One word. Challenge their own their own dogmas. You brought up some of these things. I'd like to peel that back a little yeah. more. You know, the fear of ridicule and rejection and even persecution. That's that's part of that. The the fear of loss of social or professional status. Uh, you mentioned like the medical doctors who've been afraid to speak out uh, against the obvious uh, obfuscation of data and this wrong-minded propaganda around the, the vaccines, it was, which was actually destructive, not just wrong-minded. The fear of loss of funding, like you brought up, which certainly happens in the scientific field where scientists uh, that that attached to certain dogmas like you know climate change and and big bang theory things like that there's a gravy train of funding attached to that and they don't want that to to be disrupted and and uh, hurt their personal fortunes and I would say loss of funding can also occur inside families where there might be uh, you know children who who are kind of dependent on the parent and if they fall out of grace with the parent because now they, they have a change in mind of, of some dogmatic thinking that the, the parent might might have, well, maybe that threatens the, uh, you know, some of the, the gravy that, that flows to the child. Even uh, with pastors, like you you certainly probably have had some of the experience when you've tried to introduce uh, the Urantia book as a consider is a, a considerable uh, new advance in understanding of religious truth when you try to introduce that to pastors of churches, you know even though they may have the intellectual horsepower and the actual personal desire to want to take a look at it, they might be afraid that if they do that it's going to disrupt their career. Okay. Yeah, that's and a very harsh general, reality. We, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is. And I think in general, we see that there's a, a risk aversion. There's this, you know, play it safe mentality uh, that free thinking is risky. And quite frankly, new insights can be upsetting to one's worldview. It, it really is. There, there's a risk, an intellectual risk here. It can be kind of disorienting when you, you come upon something that makes a lot more sense than the tenets that you may have held to that point in time. And, and then all of a sudden you, you get this, this big explosion in your, your mind about, whoa, what, what did I just come upon here? This, this makes a lot more sense to me. Also, I think that, that in, in general, we're seeing a lot of laziness, a lot of intellectual laziness, a reluctance to invest the time to read and research and contemplate and discuss with other people these big ideas. And, I, and then I would say kind of like the, the last reason, you know, why people might be reluctant to, to, uh, to challenge dogma is a lack of humility and just a reluctance to admit their limited knowledge, limited understanding, or that they've perhaps made error in judgment. And we all do this. You know, we, we all have some reluctance, you know, to admit that we don't know at all. Uh, no one likes to admit that they've been mistaken, you know, but there's a degree of maturity that has to come into play here. And you talked about it as human. 
you know, we're human. We have to bring the, the human fact into this big picture discussion. You know, humans are not perfect. <laughs> we make mistakes. We fail. And it's how we grow. And so we can't be afraid to acknowledge that, hey, we don't know it all and that we make mistakes uh, and that we're capable of learning something that is more true relatively, that provides insights that are extremely valuable, not just to our understanding, but how we navigate this world individually and collectively. Well, on the uh, in the dogmatic world, it is the intellectual conformity that is the easiest path. And that explains why uh, usually a majority of the people will take the easiest path. And it, it's in all realms of life. It's easier to let somebody else make the decision because then you're excused from being responsible for it if it turns out to be an incorrect decision. So for example, what you were saying about climate change, I think I'm old enough to remember when the climate was about the air, the water, and the land and not polluting and, and making it so that those three areas would remain clean. That was a very pure, noble, and, and, and well-focused idea. But then sprang into this climate crisis and the, the interesting need to count carbon. And we have this fascination with counting things and measuring things and, and, and pumping data into computers and having it tell us what's going to happen. It's sort of like this this belief in the oracle, right? If we bring the oracle enough information, then the oracle will tell us what to do. Well, behind the oracle are a few very deceptive people, and they have figured out a way uh, to, to basically instill fear into people. Fear is a great motivator, and I think the coronavirus pandemic really exposed how fearful people can be and how easy it is to get them to do things when they are, in fact, fearful of their own safety. I have relatives yeah. that don't talk to each other anymore because one doesn't want to get a COVID vaccine and the other already did, even though the one that got the vaccine has already had COVID and the one that had no vaccine got COVID. Who do you think has the better immune system? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but that's the world we're living in today right now. You know, we've got people that yeah. are just at odds with each other. So uh, there is a lot there. Um, and, you know, there is good dogma. I think there's good dogma. If you have dogma that you believe that family is the most important thing in civilization, that's good dogma. And you're going to fight yes. to, to make that work. And it is a fundamental, I think, a fundamental, provable uh, statement, which is that family is at the core of civilization. Without the family, without the stability of the family, everything else falls apart. And in the Arantia book, unlike in many religions, which does not, not pay a lot of attention to the family. Maybe the Bible does. Uh, but at the root of it, marriage, the institution of marriage, is the great civilizer of humanity. And it's now under a frontal attack. And part of that is by removing religion and faith, it makes it much easier to transform this, the person from a member of a family to a member of a state. And I want to let that hang yes. for a little while because that's, I think, the dichotomy that we're in. Uh, religion is, like, for example, my wife was watching something last night. It was a Jim and something about Jim Baker. Jim Baker. I mean, that's the guy from the 70s. And I'm thinking, what is Netflix doing now with this guy, Jim Baker, 20 years later? 
How is that even relevant? Well, it's relevant right. because it helps build up the stereotype that people who are religious are stupid or they're weak. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so they or keep pre- that. Or predatory. Yeah. Yeah, or predatory. Uh, they, they canceled yeah. some other, I can't remember what it was, but it was uh, some college canceled. It was something to do with Father's Day or something. It had something that was patriarchal, and they just canceled it. They said, we can't do that anymore. That's it. If it highlights the dad, not all people have dads. You know, it's like, okay. So that's where we're headed. Anyway, but, you know, I I do want to share this with you before, you know, uh, we go on to our next topic. But I'm reading a really good book called The Psychology of, of Totalitarianism. And I think I told you the name of the guy... Joel, um, he is, uh, I think he might be a UBer, you know? I, 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 okay. Because it reads just like, uh, it, 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 it has a lot of parallels to paper 195 and the chapter on materialism. So go read it and get the book if you can. But it kind of lends to what you were saying earlier about why do people, it seems to me that there are three kinds of people in society. There are the kinds of people who just crave security and they want they want to be taken care of and they'll go along with whatever the authorities, what you were talking about, dogma and authority. And and whoever's in charge, they trust those those people. Because again, they don't want to be held responsible. It's easier just to agree. Then you have another subset of people, say thirty percent, who don't necessarily agree with the the authority, but they don't want to make waves. And they don't want to be singled out. And, and they're conformists. But they're not blindly following. They just would prefer not to be, you know, going against the grain. Then you have that other 20 to 30% who are probably like you and me and a lot of people who read the Urantia book. We're, we're the outliers. We're the ones that question authority. We're the ones that ask the second question. Well, how come? You know, and that's, I think, the greatest strength of those people is that they're not ever going to give in to this mass formation psychosis, you know, that Dr. Robert Malone talks about, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we are always going to be, and and let me tell you something. I, the Urantia book could free so many people from this mass formation hypnosis that we hear about because it would, this is why we go back to the James Webb telescope. The James Webb telescope tells us that the big bang isn't true. Well, what are the implications yeah. of that? Well, it must mean that the universe has purpose. It's infinite. It can't. You can't have all of this order and disorder unless there's something behind it. Something would have to be in charge, whether it's the unqualified absolute, whether it's, uh, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Probably it's the same. It, to me, it's all the same. You know, and so I just want to sort of bring that to the table. How do we get people yeah. to to be freed from the shackles of materialism? Yeah, you know, I I think that when we ask that question, you know, does dogma interfere with the pursuit of truth? And we look at we look at that question very personally. Like you told you told a personal story. You know, I'll share a personal story, you know, that reflects it. It's really hard to challenge our our personal belief systems uh, 
and continue to grow. Be be willing to to examine and 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 maybe change our belief system in the light of of new information. And here, here's an example here. Okay, so the Arantia book. I've been studying it since 2005. Uh, you know, I found it extremely compelling. It answers a lot of questions. And I believe it was not authored by humans, okay? And and that's consistent with what it states. Now, I have a very dear friend of mine who is skeptical of the Urantia book, has, cert- has not read the book, has read maybe 10%, but also has, has invested a lot in, of time in reading what skeptics of the Urantia book had to say about it, particularly uh, Martin Gardner, who I know, uh, Jim, you're, you're, you would be familiar oh, sure. with Martin Gardner, and his book that he had written that attempted to debunk the Urantia book claim that it was authored by celestial beings. Well, this dear friend of mine, uh, in a well-meaning desire for me to uh, not be duped, for lack of a better word, uh, really challenged me to read Gardner's book. And, and I felt some internal reluctance at first to read the book. It's a 440-page book. And, and I thought, well, you know, maybe this is just going to be a waste of my time because, you know, I, I felt, you know, very firm in my conviction that uh, the Urantia book is, uh, you know, is authored by celestial beings. But, but I agreed to do this. I agreed that I would read the book, and I did. In fact, I just finished it last week after after several weeks of reading, uh, and it was a long read. And you know, but I learned a lot. Uh, you know, I I learned a lot uh, about the deficiencies, for one thing, in Gardner's logic, because uh, you know he argues certain points quite reasonably. But he he also has flaws in his logic in other areas and totally ignores uh, some real important aspects. Can you give any examples? Of the yeah, yeah. So here's here's uh, I would say uh, some of the most the, the most obvious logic uh, 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 deficiency that came to me. He is really, I would say, nearly obsessed with the proposition that Sadler, William Sadler, uh, did heavy editing of the Urantia material. And and his position is that Sadler likely added a number of Sadler's own uh, personal positions or philosophy into the material, that, that he at least did that. Now, what's interesting is that Gardner clearly has a very high regard for Sadler. He he really uh, notes Sadler's uh, extraordinary intelligence. Uh, he was a prolific writer and lecturer. Um, he does not at all doubt Sadler's honesty and sincerity, but yet somehow thinks that despite you know, holding Sadler up as this very sincere, honest, intelligent, discerning man that he then basically is saying that 
uh, Sadler's a, a, a plagiarist and a fraud and was deceptive. That is really inconsistent logic. Now, in his near obsession with Sadler and, and in saying, okay, here's all these parallelisms in the Urantia book with a lot of, of Sadler's own writings, which indeed is true. You can, when you examine the, the parallelisms uh, between what is in the Urantia book and many other books, uh, whether you want to consider them the, the human source materials that the Urantia book claims outright, says they, they drew from a number of different human sources of information, Sadler likely, in a lot of his writings, was likely a source of some of that material as well. But even if you just took Gardner's position that, that these were uh, Sadler's own insertions into the Urantia book as a form of editing and getting his own personal view across. What Gardner ignores totally is all of the unique, totally unique material that's in the Urantia book that you can't find anywhere else. And, and that comprises an enormous volume of this 2,000-page book is totally unique information, but yet he doesn't comment on that. And I find that intellectually dishonest. Okay, he focuses on one area where he thinks he can make a good position for his his debunking uh, goal, mm-hmm. to debunk and discredit the Urantia book. But, but in doing that, he's totally ignoring all of these amazing insights and even some scientific predictions that are in there, uh, not to mention just the, the beautiful and coherent philosophical information that's in the Urantia book. He, he just ignores all of that. And to me, that just rings as really uh, intellectually dishonest. Yeah, like and, yeah, I've heard you know, the criticism is he went in without an open mind and made the assessment that it was uh, debunkable and then just proceeded therewith. I would also say it's curious right. curious that it would take him 440 pages uh, to make his point because if it was that right. easy to debunk, he could have done it in 220, you know? Uh, so he went to yeah. great lengths to, to, to attempt it. Uh, I agree with you. I think uh, the the fact that it shows up in the SEO when you do a Google search on the Urantia book and Martin Gardner's book shows up typically in the first group of of you know pages right. and links. Yeah, it is it is a uh, it is unfortunate because I think a lot of people get their first impressions. I know I know several in my own life who did just what you said. They heard me talk about it. They went and looked online, and they came back with an unfavorable opinion and i said well did you actually read the book no so okay no. you know yeah. but that's and just that's, a weeding process it, <laughs> if that's how yeah. casual you are about something that could potentially be something as grand as the urantia book says and you're not even willing to pick it up and spend five minutes that's when i learned a long time ago that most people don't really read the bible most people don't really read the book of mormon unless they go to church and the priest says okay open up to page this and this uh, most people don't even know why they believe in what they believe. 
in my opinion, because they're basically just care. It's either evolutionary, customary, but, you know, I would say less than 10% of people typically will really take the time to get to know what their religion is all about. So that's just my, yeah. my think, assessment. Yeah, and I think that that's part of that earlier point about an intellectual laziness, so, you know, a reluctance to invest the time to read, research, contemplate, and, and discuss you know, and I, I brought up my personal example there because, you know, this this is something where, you know, I, I had to make a pretty sizable effort to read this book that I could have just dismissed, you know, the Gardner book I'm speaking about. Yeah. But yet I did. I did it. I did it because a friend, a dear friend challenged me to do this, hoping that it would kind of burst my bubble about the Urantia book's authenticity you know but i did it and so now i'm like okay so now i not only have read the urantia book uh and certainly had discussed it with many people discussed the book but now i've also read the book of the probably the most renowned critic and skeptic of the urantia book so i've got that in that full information so now isn't it fair to say that I have a more rounded understanding of both sides? Just like uh, you brought up before that, uh, you know, why is it that so many uh, Christians who are, you know, in the conventional, uh, you know, churches and and they have uh, perhaps a, a, a good grasp or, or maybe a moderate grasp of the biblical scriptures— but yet they're afraid to even examine the Urantia book, okay? But is it, wouldn't it be fair to say they would have a much more rounded perspective and understanding of all sides if they were to read both? Because one of the things that I see with Urantia book readers is many, if not most of them, are, are pretty strongly familiar with the Bible. Yeah. And, and so they have the benefit of having been exposed to a much wider range of information from which to, to assess what makes the most sense about our universe, about uh, the best way to navigate human life uh, to, and to contribute to our society and to, to learn about God and our relationship to the Creator, and, and our destiny. You know, I think when the more you are open to examining all sides, whether as a, a religionist, whether just a, a citizen going about his business, or a scientist, or a politician, or whatever, you are always better served by exposing yourself to the broader range of information. I think that's being fair-minded, and I think it's being mature. And I would love to see more maturity in our society's approach to to information and wisdom and understanding. Yeah, and I think so, and I agree with you. And I think the way it's going to happen is not by, uh, you know, the, the earlier approach, I think, was one of the earlier approaches of the Urantia book was to give it to people and just have them read it. Uh, and I've tried that, and it's completely ineffective. Completely. I've bought the book for a dozen family members, friends over the years. They they jumped, you know, I've even said start here or start there. And they read it, and they, they don't get back to me. 
I gave it to my daughter. She had it in her car for six months. <laughs> Drove around with the book. <laughs> and I said, well, give it to your boyfriend. And he and he had it for a while. He actually tried to read it. He gave it back to me and it says, I don't understand it. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it takes a, a curious mind, I think. You've got to want it. You've got to be thirsting for it. It's just like anything else. So our only method really is to do what we're doing, which is to share it when we can. Wet people's appetite, like Jesus said, don't hit them over the head with it. Uh, find out, go, yeah. to, go to their level. Find out what, what intrigues them. Uh, if they seem sp- spiritually longing or spiritually frustrated or depressed, you know, hey, if I, I might have something for you. It might make you feel better, something like that. Uh, but you know, it's, it's going to happen. It's eventually, uh, I, uh, so many people that I've talked to, uh, Joel recently have expressed some, so much optimism, uh, that we're going to get through this horrible, horrible secularistic ideological struggle that we find ourselves in more, much more pronounced yeah. in the last five years than it has in my lifetime. And I think you'd agree with that. So, but anyway. I hope it's, yeah, I do hope it's the case, Jim. I hope that that really is the case. Yeah. So, what are you working on now? Anything interesting in the Urantia realm? I know you, you know, we've still got your your wonderful PDF on my website, the Joel Garbin presentation that you did uh, to a group of of all people ufologists. I think it's still up there. And uh, are you yeah. doing, are you involved in anything? Are you going to any conferences? Have you been back from anything? Anything interesting uh, in your your uh, world? Well, I have have not. Uh, yet attended a conference it's something that i would i would like to do i was i had given some thought to the uh, the melchizedek oriented conference that was um well i guess a couple months ago i uh, would have enjoyed that but just didn't didn't work out in the schedule more of what i've been um thinking about is how to assist with the problem that the the young men in our society are having with this general abandonment of religion and how how that has resulted in so much nihilism self-destructive behaviors uh that are really harming you know that that demographic of our society the young men I'm, been you know given more thought to how the the uh, the teachings in the Urantia book could help to uplift the understanding of young men and help them to re-engage in curiosity about reality and life and what is behind all of this you know start to ask these these big questions you know about you know, where did it all spring from? Is there a creator? If so, what was the mechanism? Is there assistance to us? Is there a presence with us that comes from that divine author? Uh, and of course, you know, the Urantia book has a lot to say about that, about a divine presence with us, right? Yeah. So if you young know. men were, were to to have this as a tool, as a guidebook, and I'm not suggesting as a as a dogmatic authority or anything like that, because I think there's there's a, a real resistance to hearing anything like that, because the young men already have pushed away 
you know, most all of the conventional, uh, you know, religion in the form of churches and authorities and, and all that kind of thing. So, so I've been given more thought to how can, how can I perhaps, uh, have a, an attractive open discourse with intellectually curious young men to have them consider uh, another way. And I do think the time is right where there is a real need for uh, a revelation of greater truth that the young men can assimilate. And now I'm, I'm singling out the young men because I am a man myself and I, you know, women have a lot of their issues. The young women certainly have their issues, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not a woman. Uh, I certainly have daughters and granddaughters. Uh, so I'm immersed in the world of women, but, but my focus is more appropriately on a young man because I can mentor young men because I know the experiences that young men have to go through in order to become a man and to become you know, mature and and actually contribute to society. I have something to say about that. So I've been trying to, to figure out how to how to weave the Arantia book into that. I'm hoping now that the, the, the COVID craziness is finally seeming to subside, that maybe I can, uh, you know, start to uh, set up some type of, of, uh, of forum or something like that to, to at least start to experiment with this, uh, this concept with young men. Yeah, you know, so, it, it yeah. reminds me of the Boy Scouts. You remember, remember that organization, uh, and then it became completely oh, yeah. politicized and it destroyed it. But you know, the Boy Scouts and organizations like that, Boys and Girls Club today, do a lot towards grabbing some of those, especially the at-risk youth. And uh, and in my limited involvement with them, I find that those organizations can be life-changing. And if you can change, you know, just one or two lives you know, that, that, that's a miracle. So I, I wish you well in that endeavor. And I, I'm convinced that you will have no trouble, uh, finding a spot, uh, to do what you want to do there. That sounds well, wonderful. Well, thanks. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, Jim, I, wa- I yeah. wanted to, to, to touch on a couple points and then maybe take a few minutes to look, you know, go back to the James Webb, um, you know, revelation and its relation to the big bang, you know, you know, religious, scientific and cultural progress, is generally made by free thinking, okay, and not by dogmatism. You know, if we look at Jesus himself, certainly there was a free-thinking man. And, you know, it's it's interesting when we, we consider progress, and even what the Arantian book has to say about progress, you know, we, we know that progress is slow when it occurs incrementally, uh, you know, and and generally the Arantia book seems to feel or seems to express that slow incremental progress is appropriate and it avoids big disruptions to society. Now, that doesn't feel very satisfying for those of us who tend to be maverick thinkers and and are, are very open to new information and, and, and that we are willing to abandon our own dogmas in the face of, of information that makes more sense to us. But, but I would also point out that the big advancements, the big leaps forward, 
those do indeed come from bold and maverick thinking that is unafraid to challenge dogma. And there's big rewards that can come from that, but it occurs at substantial risk. You know, Jesus was big and bold and free thinking, and he took enormous risks. But there were huge rewards that came out of that. You know, he challenged dogma. He challenged authority. You know, he, he, was, he was unafraid to face what became, you know, rejection and ridicule and even physical persecution to the death. But yet the huge rewards that came out of that, you know, part of our challenge in discernment is where do we support the incrementalism? Where do we support the big, bold, maverick moves? You know, because I believe that there's there's a blend. There's an appropriate blend between those two, especially right now. We are in these pivotal times, and I think we all sense it. We may not be able to quite put our finger on it. You and I and certainly others who you talk to have been trying to, to, to figure out, okay, what is it? You know, what's coming at us? How right. do we navigate this? These are big, important questions. So I, I wanted to just kind of toss that out there uh, before we just kind of round things up with, 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 you know, stepping back to the, the Big Bang Theory here, Jim. So do you, do you have any, any thoughts yeah, on the sure. incrementalism versus the big big moves? Well, the, the James Webb Telescope is a metaphor, too, because think of what it's doing. We're, we're applying all of our technology to open our eyes to the reality around us. And we're seeing things now that we've never experienced before. And we're having to grapple with things that our ancestors never even dreamed of. Uh, and, and the Enlightenment, what I'm getting is a general sense of disenchantment. We put all of our faith and our hope uh, and our trust in people who told us that this was the age of reason. And they were going to take care of us. And they were going to fix all these problems. And you look around. And it just ain't so. It ain't. It ain't. It, it, there are so many things that are broken, and in in staying on a spiritual uh, direction here, and not getting political, people are upset, and they're anxious, and and it's unfortunate that there are mechanisms that will take advantage of that anxiousness and that fear that people have, and use it to try to control their behavior, or just to control things. Period. But Despite all of that, and this is the, the miracle, despite all of they're going to lose. They're going to lose because that's not the way. There's an old saying, Joel, life is what happens to you when you're busy making plans. The, the dictates of man are never going to override the progress of God. We will get through this. The importance is for us to push back against that which we know is wrong or that we know is unhealthy or that we know takes away the free will of human beings. We were meant to be free. We were endowed by our Creator to have the ability to make choices, moral choices. Uh, and so I think, you know, I tell you, I've talked to a few people who think the end of the world is coming. They're predicting. You know, I've talked on this show about the cross and the intersectionality of the crosses and the solar eclipse that's going to, you know, to transpire. 
Are we in a period of tribulation? There's all these things going on. And what it tells me is that there is something going on. Can't put our finger on it, but it was the same way during the period of Jesus' time. If you think about it, you had all these conflicting political forces, these religious forces. So something exciting is going to happen, and I have faith in the process. So that's what tempers me from getting too anxious. And, uh, you know, that's that's where I find my refuge. Yeah, well stated. Certainly there's an acceleration that's occurring right now. And there's tension. Like you said, the birth pangs, well, when it, it becomes closer to the delivery of something totally new, as in a child uh, from the mother's womb, those contractions get closer and closer and more That's and more right. intense. Yeah. And we seem to be in that type of period coming back to the, the Big Bang theory and why I forwarded you what I did on this uh, this commentary by a researcher named Eric Lerner. A little bit about Eric. I came upon Eric Lerner probably about 10 years ago uh, when I was uh, running a nonprofit called the New Energy Movement that focuses on the uh, uh, breakthrough energy technologies. Eric Lerner is a plasma physicist who has been investigating a type of breakthrough energy technology uh, that is is fusion based. Uh, in fact, he calls it focus fusion, and it uses high energy plasmas to cause a fusion reaction between uh, hydrogen atoms and boron atoms to to produce enormous amounts of energy without harmful radiation. So it's it's doing some of the things that are analogous to what happens inside a star, where a star produces uh, uh, enormous amounts of energy from the fusion of hydrogen, and and uh, with the byproduct being uh, primarily helium. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's a brilliant man, brilliant researcher, uh, he also was the author of a book called The Big Bang Never Happened. And in his understanding of, of plasma and his own theories about that the universe uh, largely is, is comprised of plasma, and uh, in him, you know, just kind of his own observations of the research that's out there uh, that has been gathered by astronomers and astrophysicists, you know, he became convinced, you know, decades ago that the Big Bang theory is not supported by the observations and, and by the data. Well, when the these recent images from the James Webb Space Telescope came out in uh, July, uh, Eric, just a few weeks ago, released this article that said, hey, folks, uh, these images are so highly disruptive to the Big Bang theory that many of the leading uh, theoretical physicists and cosmologists are having near panic attacks (laughs) because it is totally disrupting their life's research, which has been all about 
being advocates for Big Bang Theory. And, and he, he references, you know, several different uh, researchers and, and in their own words saying, you know, how, how they can't sleep at night yeah, <laughs> because they're wondering if they've wasted their careers just following a total fantasy. And that's right. It's a, it's a really interesting, relatively short article that he wrote. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the threads that led from that for me was I kind of did a little more investigation and I I found some of the uh, uh, videos and commentary by one of the leading U.S. theoretical physicists and cosmologists. Uh, his name is Paul Steinhardt, and Paul is very high profile. He's the Albert Einstein professor in science at Princeton University. Well, Paul Steinhardt, he had been one of the leading advocates of Big Bang Theory, <laughs> and then last year he totally disrupted that whole scene uh, when he gave a presentation that said we must abandon Big Bang Theory because it it just is meaningless now. Really? And he has come to advocate what has come to be known as the Big Bounce Theory. Not Big Bang Theory, but the Big Bounce Theory. Mm -hmm. It entails universal expansion and then contraction. Right. Does that sound familiar? Of course, okay. respiration. Part, yeah, part of the big bounce theory, it includes the possibility of a cyclical expansion and contraction of the universe and space itself. Well, guess what, folks? That is really analogous to what the Urantia book says about space respiration, that there is a, a cycle of universe expansion and contraction. Not a Big Bang, okay, but this very beautiful, uh, you know, uh, uh, natural and consistent cycle of, it's a, supposedly in the Urantia book, uh, it's a two billion year cycle, a billion years of expansion followed by a billion years of contraction. Uh, and it, it's, it's uh, well articulated in the Urantia book. But to see, here is yeah. probably, if, you know, if not the leading theoretical physicist in the U.S., certainly one of them, who's just saying, big bang out the door, uh, big bounce in the door, and it's just startling. And it's very disruptive and unsettling to so many of these hundreds or perhaps thousands of of brilliantly uh, intelligent scientists who are now wondering if their whole livelihood uh, and their funding is going to be coming to an end. But this is why you're not really hearing anything about this, because it's it's so unsettling and so disruptive. They don't want the media to talk about this. No, I think it's I think it's wonderful. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Like you, when I was young, it just didn't make sense, and they they kept moving the number back. And I thought, well, you know, and this was even before I started reading the Urantia book. It just didn't seem right. And then when they started layering, everything was based on one principal idea, which is the universe came into existence on its own 
and it was 14 billion years ago because that's as far back as we can see. And that premise alone, just it was not intellectually, in my my opinion, intellectually satisfying. So, and I think that's a good place to end it. I think it's great that it's happening, and maybe the next time we talk, we'll get more. You know, maybe there'll be more articles about it that we can talk about. But it's definitely going to shake up the astronomical community, and it's going to force us to reevaluate all the way going back to Einstein and his general theory of uh, relativity, which brings to mind that. That, fa- that wonderfully clever quote in the Arantia book where the author says something akin to, don't let your dabblings re- with relativity confuse you. <laughs> Jim, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me on. This has been a really fun and stimulating conversation and I think an important and relevant one. So just thank you again, brother. It's always a joy to talk to you. You too. And Joel Garbin, who has been on, go back and listen to some of the earlier podcasts. They're absolutely wonderful, too. And we thank you, and we'll talk to you again real soon. We thought we'd start with uh, the questioning the mother of all theories, the Big Bang. Um, science's very own uh, Genesis story. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, there was an enormous bang. Now, of course, uh, like any physical theory, I would regard the Big Bang as being provisional. Uh, Tomorrow, perhaps even yesterday, something could come up uh, and invalidate. We also have to explain what gave those initial conditions, what gave the Big Bang itself. So in in that sense, um, I would say that our standard model of cosmology, although correct in, in a certain regime, it's an incomplete theory.